0: love thy neighborhood. Okay, we've been talking about this for a little bit. It is this great, I don't know what descriptive word to call it, program or push or sort of thing that we are doing, where we want to get out amongst our neighbors in our neighborhoods and just love. Because isn't that what God wants to do? Isn't that what he has done for us? He has loved us and he has given us new life. And we just want to share that love, not in a manipulative way not in a you know we're just trying to force people into the church not in anything like that but just to go and serve and love people no strings attached so that people will know what that love looks like yeah so we're going to be starting that next week and it's going to be an amazing push we're going to we got lots of interesting ideas and things around that so you'll um, be a part of that so I encourage you to come along um, and invite your friends if you want, and just be a part of what's happening with that. That um, push is actually, it's, it's what this Beyond series that we're in at the moment is all about as well. Um, so we've been doing this series on what's called the Great Commission. Uh, this, this sort of command that Jesus gave his followers to go out into the world and to share him with people, to tell people about him. Again, not to coerce or manipulate or to force, but to share amazing news about what it means to be free, about what it means to have life that doesn't end, crazy and weird as that may sound. Um, That's what he has asked us to do. So we've been going through this passage, um, this, this sort of at the end of Matthew, and we've been looking, yep, it's up, well done. See, it says, please mention Bible app here. It's even got it up there. And now it works. See? Trestle mended. That's wonderful. All right. So um, as you'll see in there, in the Bible app, actually, we've got the passage listed um, at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And one of the things that's been going on is we've been reading it several times and we've been talking about how Jesus said, he says, therefore, go and make disciples, share me with all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we kind of glossed over it at first because we kind of said that this word "baptized" represents this decision. So what we're doing is helping people to understand who Jesus is and help them make that decision to follow him and then to follow that up by helping them live that life, right? And so we kind of said that's what the word baptize means and we kind of stuck it on the shelf and we moved on. Well, today what I want to do is go back to the shelf and pull it back off and see what it is that we're talking about here. Because... Baptism is can be kind of a confusing subject. In fact, if you if you were to do a survey around all of the different Christian traditions that we have, all of the different churches around the world, the way that they approach this idea of baptism could cause a lot of confusion. I mean, there are some people who Um, say that you can't be a Christian without being baptized. Others say it's not really that important and they just say, you know, a prayer is is all that you need. There are some people who say that, you know, uh, you do it when you become a Christian. Others do it every year. There are some that get baptized right away. Others wait until they can get all of their friends and family together and then they do it. There are some that kind of Get sprinkled. This guy is, is like sprinkling the crowds. This is one form of baptism. Others get dunked. Others get poured on. There's all sorts of different ways that people go about baptism. And we start asking these questions so, what's the right way? How important is it? What's going on here? And unfortunately, what that means is a lot of church traditions will start picking up their swords and ready to fight for what they believe is the right way of going about this thing, and they start attacking other places, and then there's other people who kind of look at that whole shebang and think, this is is not even worth it. This is just like, we're blowing this way out of proportion, it's not that big a deal. So what do I want to do today? Setting all of that aside, because honestly, I think it's a little bit heartbreaking to see the Christian faith being sort of used as a battleground. And what happens is, when all of this confusion is happening and all this arguing is going, and then all of these people throwing up their hands and saying, this is just not worth it, this is not worth even looking at because I don't want to touch that can of worms, is we miss something. We miss something that God put in the story of the Bible for us. Put something in there for us. And because we're arguing over it, we don't see it. So what I want to do this morning, I want to set aside all of the, if I can, what I want to do is set aside the shoulds and the rights and the wrongs. And what I want to do is I want to explore a little bit of what are we talking about? What is baptism? What was the original intention? What was going on? What does it mean? And I think what we will hopefully see is something beautiful, something incredible, an amazing picture, not just of a decision, but a picture of what God has done for us throughout history. All right. And so the way we're going to do it is I want to start at the beginning or very near the beginning of the Bible, and I want to bring out a couple of themes, a couple of ideas that play through the biblical story that help us understand what's going on. The first comes in Genesis chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with this story. There's a story of a flood, okay, because God made humanity, and humanity being humanity rejected God and kind of started rebelling against God and was kind of really being mean, honestly, to each other and to him. And God's like, this is, this is dumb. You, you, you're supposed to follow me and you haven't. And he is angry and rightfully so. And so he says, that's it, I'm done. I am just going to bring my judgment across the world and I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. And so these waters of the flood become symbolic of the judgment of God, right? I mean, this, this really happened. This not necessarily a symbolic thing, but the symbolism of what happened shows that the waters are judgment. And yet, even within that story, you see there's a boat there with eight people who were saved from that judgment. They went through the waters on an ark and were saved from that judgment because God showed mercy on them. All right, so that's Genesis chapter 6. Later on in Exodus chapter 14, we have another patch of water. This time it's with the, the, uh, the Hebrews, God's people, saved out of slavery in Egypt. Some of you will remember this story as well, led by Moses. They're running away from Egypt. Egypt is following them, trying to destroy them. And they come to the Red Sea. And, oh, no, there's no way we can get past the Red Sea. But then God says, no, this is no problem for me. And he splits the water. Now, I want you to understand the symbolism of what happens next because the people of God walk through the waters. They walk through the waters and are saved from the waters. And then when the Egyptians come through, what happens? God smashes the waters back down, destroys the Egyptian army, and his judgment, his punishment for the fact that the Egyptians were attacking his people comes through in those waters again right so we see that water again represents this judgment right does that make sense so in the first two books of the bible we've got water that becomes a symbol of god's judgment and in the ancient world this really played true they believed that large bodies of water were controlled by the gods they were a a, a symbol of chaos and judgment by god because you could not control them right so they had to be god's domain And so every time there was a flood or anything like that, that was a punishment from the gods. Um, In the Old Testament prophets, you see some of this concept of ocean and chaos and God's judgment playing through as well. And then it's interesting in the New Testament, in the second part of the Bible, right at the end, when God is describing when heaven, and he's describing this place where there is no more judgment. You know what he says? There will be no more sea. So there's this symbolism there of this judgment. Okay, first theme, judgment of water, right? Second theme comes through in what we call the law. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people all of these rules to follow. Yeah, and We're like, man, I'm glad I don't have to follow those rules because they were crazy. They were, they're were really hard. Hundreds of rules to follow, And as the reason that they had to follow them was because God wanted to live amongst his people, right? He wanted to live among them, but he was perfect. He was pure, right? And we were not. We kept making mistakes. And so he gave us these rules to help us become more pure, to help us to live the right way so that he could come close to us. Does that make sense? Now, one of the themes that comes through with this is this idea of purity and cleanliness, God says you need to be clean, right? We see this throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms. He says, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Sin being rebellion. Wash yourselves and be clean, God tells us. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. So there is this correlation between cleanliness and purity, which is where the, the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness, right? That's this idea that we are supposed to be cleansed. So throughout the Old Testament, you have this practice of ceremonial washing that comes through, where people would wash themselves, sometimes just their hands, sometimes their faces, sometimes their whole bodies, where they would like wash themselves as a statement of trying to become pure enough to get close to God. Does that make sense? And so even in Jesus' time, uh, the religious leaders, they were giving... Jesus and his disciples a hard time because they weren't washing their hands before they would eat, which we're like, well, that's just good hygiene. You know, why wouldn't you do that anyway? But in those days, they weren't concerned with hygiene. They were concerned with this idea of being cleansed, pure. So what they would do is they would wash their hands up to their wrists because your hands do evil things. And so you're washing them to be cleansed so that you are closer to God. Interesting side note, a lot of the Old Testament laws around that purity and cleanliness are actually really good hygiene factors anyway. It's just an interesting side point. But anyway, so there's this idea of cleanliness. And this cleanliness was designed to plead to God, to pray to God that you would be cleansed. So you would wash yourself. Sometimes they would do full immersion of washing in order to be close to God. The last of these was a guy named John the Baptist, all right? So this is where we're introduced to the word baptism. Now, the beginning of the New Testament, the second portion of the Bible, and the stories about Jesus, before Jesus turns up on the scene, we have this little sort of prologue of John the Baptist. And he goes around and he's baptizing people. Now, he's not trying to baptize people so that they would be saved because Jesus hadn't done anything yet. What he was doing was he was preparing people for the presence of God. Because God was about to enter. Jesus was about to come onto earth. So he was preparing people. So just like in the Old Testament, he was getting people to wash themselves, to sort of plead to God and to say to God, I want to be clean and pure so that I can come close to God or God is going to come close to me. Right. So that's what he was doing. And we get this word baptiz- or baptism, which is... Literally means immerse. So you could call him John the Dunker because that's what he did. It's just a description of what he did. And so he would baptize people to help them get their hearts in the right place. All right, then comes Jesus. And so we have this theme of water and judgment and you have this theme of cleansing yourself in order to be pure enough to get close to God. And then Jesus comes and he lives his life and he dies on the cross and he takes the punishment for all of our sins. He comes back alive again and he changes the idea of those two concepts forever. He changes the idea of how we face judgment of God because he saved us from that judgment. And then he changes the idea of what it means to become pure enough to get close to God Because he makes us pure enough to get close to God. And so because of him, we're able to escape judgment, escape those waters, and we're able to be close enough to be in God's family. It's a beautiful story. So it's interesting then that the symbolism, the action that happens When we make that decision to join with Jesus is baptism, because baptism brings both of these two beautiful concepts together. We see this really well in later on in the book of 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter is one of the letters written after Jesus went back to heaven one um, of his followers wrote letters to Christians around the world to tell them about what was going on, to help them understand everything. And he explains it. And in the context of this letter, he's talking to people who are suffering for doing good. And so he says, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then he gives us the reason. He says, for Christ also suffered for our sins. That's when dying on the cross, him getting that judgment from God. The righteous for the unrighteous. Meaning he was he was fine. We were not fine, and yet he swapped that around and he took the unfineness, if that's a word, to give us being fine with God. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And then comes to a really confusing bit. He says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. While the ark was being built. What does that mean? I don't know. Martin Luther famously said, I got no idea what's going on here. And I'm with him. Um, I don't know if we need to know exactly what he means by all of that stuff. But what's interesting is he brings in the story of Noah again. And this is where it gets really interesting. He says, In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him, which if you've been part of our series, kind of harkens back to when Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me, which harkens back to the Old Testament and Daniel 7. Lots of fun stuff in there. So there's that theme here. But what I really want to look at is the way that he talks about baptism. Now, what's interesting is Peter pulls in the story of Noah, okay? And he says, we were saved, or those people were saved, what's the language? Through the water. And he says in the same way baptism saves you, as you go through the water of judgment and escape cleanly on the other side. That's the picture of what's happening. It's explained again here in another letter called Romans where he says, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by his glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Okay. So in baptism, we're not just getting wet, but there is this action where we follow Jesus into the waters of judgment, into death. Jesus died. We follow him into that space. But because Jesus went first and because he came back from the waters of judgment, back from death, back to life, we also follow him back out. Do you see that in the action of baptism? where we dunk someone into the water and we bring them back out. It's not just mere symbology. I believe this is part of us joining with what Jesus did. We're following him into those waters of judgment and coming back out unscathed, clean, unharmed, unhurt on the other side because Jesus went first. So going back to Peter... Not only does he draw on this water as judgment, but also this ritual purification. Did you see that in there? He says, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience. See, it's just like in the Old Testament where you would wash yourselves and you say, God, I want to be clean and I'm washing myself as a symbol of being clean. Except in the Old Testament, in the old ritual, you could do that a thousand times and it would never work because it's being done in your efforts, right? You're saying, I want to be better. I want to be clean. I want to be pure. And the heart is great and the intention is wonderful, but we just don't have the ability to make that happen. We can never work ourselves close enough to God to be accepted by him, right? But because of Jesus, we don't have to work anymore. He's done all of that. So now, when we take this baptism, when we pledge to God, we say, hey, God, I want to be clean. It works. It sticks. It's effective because of what Jesus did. And he says right there, it's not the water that cleanses us. But the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus did for us, that's what cleanses us. Which is why sometimes, strangely, we say we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Have you ever heard that phrase? And have you ever thought, gross? That's kind of really weird. I don't know if I like that. This is kind of making me a little queasy. But what it's saying is because of what Jesus did, his blood spilt. He let himself die. And that is what cleanses us and makes us pure and white. Does that make sense? So we have this powerful imagery and symbolism. It's not just a thing that we do when we decide to become a Christian. It is a story of what being a Christian is, what God did for us, what we have escaped, this place that we were in judgment of God because we rebelled against Him. We weren't following Him. We had those waters crashing down on us. But because of Jesus, because we enter into that that death and, and resurrection of Jesus, those waters cannot harm us anymore. And because we've been, we're praying for this clean conscience in the name of Jesus or in the power, in the authority of Jesus, associating with what Jesus did, that baptism is effective. That prayer is effective because God says, of course you are clean enough because Jesus made you clean. And now you can be closely connected with God. Is that, is that tracking with you guys? Making sense? It's a really beautiful picture. Now, from that, there's a few things that we kind of we kind of sort of pull from that that helps to inform the way that we go about baptism at Church Northwest. Okay, so a few things, and some of these may not jibe well with you, and that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm learning as I get older to not be so adamant and stuff, and I'm right and you're wrong. But at the same time, we, we understand that the Bible says something, and this is what we gain from what the Bible says. We're always open to other people having different understandings of what the Bible says. That's you know We, we want to have those conversations. But if you're asking us what we believe the Bible says, this is what we're pulling from this first is because of the language of baptism meaning immersion and because of the symbology of entering into the death and then coming into the life, that's why we dunk. We don't pour or sprinkle because that's just not what we see happening. Not a deal-breaker by any means. But that's, I think it just honors the imagery of what's going on. So that's why we do that. Uh, so this afternoon when I baptized Dylan... I'm going to make them all the way wet, bring them down, bring them back up again to symbolize that death and that resurrection, the coming back to life. Secondly, um, and this one is probably the hardest one, is the idea of baptism being this prayer of cleanliness. It's an outward action of an inner decision. That is why we, we believe that this is a decision that you need to make for yourself not a decision you can necessarily make for other people, which is why we don't practice the baptism of babies, because we don't believe that babies and young children are old enough to understand the decision that they're making. Um... A lot of traditions do a, will have like a, a the baby and then when they are old enough to have a confirmation, which is basically the same sort of concept. So they baptize the baby and they have this confirmation, which is the decision that that person has. So we actually have a similar sort of thing where we have a dedication for the baby when they're young and then a baptism when they're older. I would just say that's, that would be the arrangement. Given what baptism is, what it symbolizes, how it works, that's where I would put it. Love baby dedications. Fantastic idea. Not so much about this is what I'm deciding for my child's faith, but rather what I am deciding for my role as a parent and our role as a church to raise that child to know and to understand so that they can make that decision and get baptized at that moment. So that's that's the way that we would play that. That's the way that we would do it. One of the major barriers, and this is a little bit of a tangent, please bear with me, Um, there is as sort of an understanding or a belief that a lot of traditions would have where they believe that because of what Adam did, but Adam and Eve, where they rebelled against God from the very beginning, and so because of that, there is the sickness throughout humanity called original sin, where we are born separated from God. Okay? That is a common belief, and like Catholics would believe that, and other um, traditions would believe that as well. Without wading too deep into the theological mud here, because this can get really deep and heavy, and I'm willing to have conversations with people if you want some clarification around this. I believe that even if original sin did exist, and I'm not 100% convinced that it is, but even if it is and you believe that, I believe because of the book of Romans, chapter 5, that what Jesus did covers original sin, what is called original grace. So the idea is that, that children and babies... There may have been a separation, but Jesus covers that separation with grace so that they are protected until such time as they are old enough to understand and make their own decisions and become accountable for what they choose to do. Does that make sense? And again, not everyone's going to be on board with that, and I understand that, but that is what I believe. Therefore, I'm not concerned, and we shouldn't be concerned about if something happened to this... Obviously, we're concerned about something happens to the baby. That's that's a given. But if something happened, that their position before God would be endangered if we don't dunk them. Because I believe even if you did, you can't make that decision for them. It would be a prayer to God, and some people would say, we're praying to God on their behalf because they can't make that decision for themselves. And I would say they don't need to because they're going to make that decision for themselves. Clear as mud? Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, the final observation that I have from baptism is, and that relates to how important it is, and this is, I'm going to go a little off script here because I have to make an admission that my tradition that I come from is unfortunately militant around this. Some people are, some aren't. There are people in my tradition that I got trained under who would be adamant that if you are not baptized, you are not saved. And they would look at the passage we just looked at and they would say, This baptism saves you. And they'll say, ah, that's where it says it. No donkey, no savey. I would not go that far. I'm not going to say that. It is not my position or any of our position to make a judgment on whether someone else is saved or not. Um, That is between us and God. And I believe that that stance is a little bit too strong on baptism, a little too soft on grace given that baptism is a representation of the decision. It's the resurrection that saves, not the water. It is the faith that we have in Jesus that saves us, not the action itself. Okay? Put that there. Let it sit nicely on the shelf. I'm not going to condemn a thousand years of Catholic Christianity because of that. Now I'm going to come over here And I'm going to say one of the things, one of the reactions to this is that we say, well, then it's not really important at all. And I think that would be a misunderstanding, not of what God tells us to do, although that's an element. I think it's a misunderstanding of the richness of what God has provided for us to understand what it is that we are getting into what it is that he has done for us. It is a statement of understanding that I have come out of those judgment waters and I've become purified into the family of God. Can that be done without baptism? My question is, why would it be? God has given us this. There is no example in the New Testament of anyone becoming a Christian and not being baptized. So my question is, Why would we try to separate that out? Not as a judgment statement. Not as a, you're a bad person if you don't. Not as a, I don't believe anything else you're going to say about this. You may have good reasons, good scriptural understanding, and that's fine. But I think for many of us, we just haven't seen the beauty of what baptism really is. This action of saying, I want in completely. I want to be purified. I want to have, I want to escape this rebellion, this this separated from God that I've lived my whole life, or maybe I haven't, maybe I've been a Christian, but I just want to, I want to understand and accept and participate in the beauty of of what that moment is. And so that's why we would, at Church Northwest, dunk as quickly as possible. You become a Christian, you make that decision, awesome, let's make that decision, let's symbolize that decision, let's let's do that, let's enact this. Let's enter into those waters, let's come back out a new person. That's what we would do. That's what we're going to be doing this afternoon. So, how does this pertain to you? What am I asking of you? Everyone's squirming in their seats. What am I going to make you do today? I'm not going to make you do anything. That's not my role. It is not my role to say or to bring judgment or to bring a sense of or even to make a statement about your standing before God. I don't believe that's my job. People have taken that in my position before. I believe it is my job to open up the Bible, which I don't even have one here, but I did look. Open up the Bible bring that out to you, show you what God has done through this, show you what he is asking of you, and then let God have a conversation with you about it. So here's what we're going to do next. We're going to put a video on. I've nearly pointed to Nate. He's not going to do it. We've got a video, a sort of a contemplatory, contemplative song, a chance for us to just take this moment to God, And maybe you have been baptized and this is just the celebration of what's going on and and, and you're thankful. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you are a Christian and you haven't been baptized in this way and you're thinking, God, what what do you want here? I don't want you to ask Hamish what you want. I want you to ask, God, what, what are you thinking? This is a time to have that conversation. Maybe you aren't even a Christian and you're thinking about what does this even mean? Like Coming closer to God, is that what I really want? This is a chance to let God maybe infiltrate your mind a little bit. Infiltrate your heart. Come in and have a conversation.